86 people have been shot, 14 of them fatally in Chicago. Possible shots fired at Stoma Douglas High School. We have an active shooter. We have an active shooter inside the warehouse. Every 15 minutes in America, someone is killed by gun violence. Please put the gun down, please. And it keeps getting worse. We have 400 million guns in private possession in America. If we can't protect our children in schools, then who can we protect? Join us as we explore this issue and the search for solutions. Someone who goes out and massacres a bunch of strangers, that's not the act of a healthy mind. From ABC News, this is Gun Violence in America. My girl, my 14-year-old baby, this makes no sense. Don't tell me there's no such thing as gun violence. Here is correspondent Aaron Katursky. It's happening all over. Shots fired over here! And all too often. <laughs> As America struggles to emerge from one pandemic, the nation is besieged by another. We got two stopped at 166 in college, we got a male shot. Watch it, shots fired, shots fired! Get down, get down, get down. The country tries to recover from COVID-19 with its unfair burdens and incomprehensible death toll and is sickened anew by gun violence with its unfair burdens and ever-growing death toll. And he had taken their lives. He had shot and killed both my son and my daughter. Police say the increase in shootings is much of the time due to urban gangs, but there are also variants involving warring drug traffickers, mass shootings, domestic violence and suicide. All of it, experts say, fueled by the health and economic strains wrought by COVID-19 and powered by the uniquely American affinity for and access to guns. We had an old joke when I ran crime strategies here, you can't shoot somebody without a gun. Dermot Shea is the police commissioner in New York City. Identifying who's carrying guns, the cops going out there making the arrests, taking the gun off the street is great. But really what we need is we need the individual carrying the gun off the street. And yet guns proliferate with consequences for a cross-section of American families. My name is Crystal Turner. I currently reside in Jacksonville, Florida. And I'm speaking with you, Aaron, today because unfortunately two of my biological children, uh, my 29-year-old daughter, Jenea, and my 23-year-old son, uh, Donnell, at that time, were both murdered together. Two of Crystal Turner's grown children were victims of a shooting in Columbus, Ohio, fueled by domestic violence. Her daughter, Jenea, had filed for divorce from Roy Harvison, who then came to the parking lot of the daycare center she founded and ambushed her and her brother at lunchtime. I got to call at 12 noon. There were 22 rounds that were found. A lot of couples have job stress, child care stress, you with postpartum. Mm -hmm. The difference here was a gun. Yes, access to a gun. Roy Harvison is now serving a life sentence, but he altered Crystal Turner's life and the lives of her relatives. And unfortunately, we know today that there are millions of other families now who have very similar stories and have very similar experiences. Jeannie Shuh's family is another forever changed by gun violence. My dad survived a mass shooting which happened at his workplace. So actively hearing gunshots. In May 2019, a city employee opened fire at the Municipal Center in Virginia Beach, a mass shooting that left 12 people dead. Even now, it feels completely surreal for something this severe to hit so close to home. And yet, on the other hand, I'm fully aware of the pain that so many families experienced that night. Even though your dad, thank God, was okay. 
this trauma is like sticks with people forever. No one may understand that more than DeAndre Dykus, whose son Dre Knox was struck by a stray bullet in Indianapolis. 13 years old, uh, some allegedly some young men started shooting outside of the home and struck my son in the back of the head. A stray bullet flew through a window. Um, Left Dre is a nonverbal quadriplegic, so he doesn't talk. And he hasn't walked in over seven and a half. Well, we're about at seven and a half years. Dre lived, but as his mom told us, his life was taken. We have to bathe him. We have to dress him. Everything goes through his tube. We have to lift him in and out of bed to put him in his wheelchair. We have to roll him over. We have to change diapers. And that's from a single stray bullet. It's not a physical loss the way that most people see it. But I have lost who Dre was, and I have lost who Dre was ever going to be, who we hoped and he hoped. I haven't heard him talk in seven and a half years, but you know what? I'm sure he's thinking and wondering, and there's times where we're sitting there and tears roll down his eyes, and those are the moments I know he's wondering, how did I get in this space? Deandra Dykus has turned her pain into advocacy. After we tally and mourn the dead, she wants us to think about the wounded. I was treated as if, why are you here? Your son lived. And then I began sharing what living a gunshot wound to the back left of your skull looks like. And people were like, oh, wow. Deandra Dykus, Jeannie Shaw, Crystal Turner, three women whose lives were permanently altered by gun violence, whether from a stray bullet, a mass shooting, or domestic violence. And then there's Giovanna McDowell whose son was killed by accident. My 14-year-old son, Juwan, was visiting family in our hometown of Savannah, Georgia, on his spring break. Um, he was shot and killed by another team playing with an unsecured firearm. The kid never realized there was a bullet in the chamber. So when Juwan told him to put the gun away, he said, look, it's not loaded, pulling the trigger um, and striking Juwan in his chest. She, too, is an advocate for secure storage of firearms. It's a matter of safety and saving lives, and we can't be casual um, about it because being casual can lead to casualties. Do we have to do this now as parents? Do we have to ask before our kids go on a play date somewhere? Do you have a gun and is it properly stored? Yes, I think that. We have to, um, because we can never be um, so sure that everyone will operate and do the things that we do in our homes. All of these kinds of shootings, accidental, domestic, suicide, stray, mass casualty, they're all contributing to the nationwide increase. But in many cities, the biggest drivers of gun violence are gangs. What we're seeing is just kind of a war zone type, type of atmosphere. Paco Valderrama is the police chief in Fresno, California. You mentioned active shooters and, and mass shootings. Well, that's something that we train for, and that's on our radar. Uh, those are uh, relatively infrequent when you consider that this weekend we're probably going to have probably 10 shootings. Across the country, New York Police Commissioner Dermot Shea says the same. The vast majority of what we see is still gang-related. Um, it could be over turf. It could be over drug money. Oftentimes, tragically, and this, these are really the tragic ones, it's often nothing. With guns so readily available, Shea told us more disputes get resolved with them. And he said people seem more brazen carrying them. More guns on the scene of shootings, more rounds being fired. Um, the brazenness of uh, an individual coming back to the crime scene, being stopped and having a gun on them. There's no doubt that we've seen 
a lack of fear of carrying a gun. There is no official count of how many Americans own guns, but according to the small arms survey, there are an estimated 400 million guns in the United States, the most heavily armed nation in the world. In the last quarter century, the country has taken a broad view of the Second Amendment, which enshrines the right to bear arms. I certainly don't think it was inevitable to the founders that this is where we would be, because the Second Amendment was not intended at the time to mean that people could use guns to commit acts of violence that were not in self-defense. Certainly was never intended to mean that people could organize as their own private armies or private militias. Until the Supreme Court's Heller decision in 2008 permitted near-universal gun ownership for self-defense, Mary McCord at Georgetown Law said the Second Amendment was interpreted to only allow people to bear arms as part of a government-regulated, politically accountable militia. Even in that massive change to the way we understood the Second Amendment, never did the Supreme Court su- suggest that there was a right to bear bear arms to commit acts of violence, that there was a right for anyone to have a firearm for any purpose whatsoever. The reality of America's affinity for guns is reinforced each week in shooting statistics. Not that Crystal Turner, whose daughter and son were gunned down in Ohio, needs the reminder. If the access to the gun was not as readily as available, the stories that we now tell, we know would have a different ending. As a nation, we have marveled at how science can find vaccines for things like coronavirus. But ask any doctor and they'll tell you it's getting no easier to treat victims of gunshots. Our children are living and dying with guns. It is their reality. Lockdown drills in schools are as common now as fire drills. ABC's Michelle Franzen tells us what that does to children psychologically. In Watertown, Connecticut, about 26 miles from the side of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, the squeak of a swing's chain and kids like little Alessandra at play. This playground has special significance, built in honor of Don Lafferty Hawksprung, the principal of Sandy Hook Elementary, one of six adults and 20 first and second grade students shot and killed in December 2012. A mass shooting and this time gunfire aimed at elementary school children. This was dedicated to really all of the children and the teachers, but in particular, Dawn Hawksprung. This is celebrating Dawn's life and her love of teaching. Bill Lavin heads up the construction of those playgrounds for the charitable organization where angels play. There's 20 swings that represent the the special number of the children, and then the six other riding toys represent the educators. The Sandy Hook families united behind this project. We made sure that this was their project and uh, find a way to express how these beautiful children lived rather than how they left us. 27-year-old first grade teacher Vicki Soto lost her own life protecting her students from the gunman. She was my, my right hand. Carlos Soto is the father of Victoria Soto known to her family and friends as Vicky. As a teacher, she always told us that she wanted to be special, different than other teachers. Carlos says the inaction on gun violence following Sandy Hook is painful for him and his family. Like my son said, when he went to Washington a couple years ago when they had the shooting in Florida, he said it was seven years ago my sister was killed and nothing has been done. What has changed? The drill we need to lock a generation of K-12 through students growing up in the wake of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting nearly nine years ago, now preparing for the possibility of a shooting at their school 
even if they don't know it. We pretended there was a bear. That's six-year-old Liam telling his mom, Tara, an ABC News producer, about his recent drill. We have to go down um, and hide. A layer of innocence lost, no matter the age. And a new norm, says 19-year-old Hannah Jack. I could see, like, the pain in their face and, like, this how scared they were when, like, the alarms would go off. And it, it scared me, too, you know? She was in fifth grade when the Sandy Hook shooting happened. That was life at that point. Like, it didn't really dawn on me that it was anything different. That is the reality of America. There's 400 million-plus guns in this country. Gun violence can affect a family or a child's life at any time. John Woodrow Cox is the author of Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. Cox estimates during a single school year, 4 to 8 million kids experience lockdowns. Even when they turned out to be false alarms, they leave their mark. And a meaningful number of that 4 to 8 million kids thought, at least momentarily, that they might get shot to death in their school. And we know that because they text their parents goodbye, they write wills saying who they want their toys to go to, uh, they soil themselves, they weep. Our nation's kids on the front lines of this gun epidemic goes so far beyond the children who are physically wounded. It's the kids who were uh, at the school or on the playground when the shooting occurred and witnessed it. It's not just at school where children are at risk of gun violence. In the search for the gunman in the shooting that killed a six-year-old little girl in just Washington. Just weeks ago, six-year-old Naya Courtney was struck and killed by a bullet while riding her scooter on a sidewalk in southeast Washington, D.C. Her grandmother, Andrea Courtney. My granddaughter did nothing to no one to be the one that had to be buried. According to the Gun Violence Archive, in 2019, more than 3,700 children and teens died or were injured in gun incidents. The toddler could not be safe. Even in the safety of homes, kids are getting their hands on guns, hurting others or themselves. When a little boy found a gun legally owned by his father in a TV stand and accidentally shot himself in the head. The kids find guns uh, in their parents' homes all the time. If the only change we made in this country was to say, uh, we're not gonna let children get access to guns. Everybody who has a gun in a home where children could access it, they're gonna lock that gun up. More than half of the school shootings that have occurred since Columbine, they would not have happened. Back at the playground in Watertown, Bill Lavin says beyond politics, we have to find common ground and break ground to turn the trend. He says the families of Sandy Hook victims want that too. You know, we should be able to figure it out. I think that's what their hope is, to prevent another family from going through what they had to experience. For Carlos Soto, the father of Vicky, the Sandy Hook Elementary School teacher who died while shielding her students, he says on the bad days, he goes to his daughter's playground. And I sit there watching the kids play and enjoying it. And that gave me more relief and it gave me peace. Aaron? ABC's Michelle Franzen. The gunman in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting suffered from mental illness. We asked ABC's Daria Albinger to take a look at the connection between mental health and gun violence. Anytime there's a mass shooting in America, inevitably someone will make a link to mental health. Treated once for a mental health illness. It's indicative of a mental health issue in this country. These shooters are invariably mentally incapacitated. But experts say the relationship between mental health and gun violence is more complex. Someone who goes out and massacres a bunch of strangers, that's not the act of a healthy mind. There's something wrong with that person. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they have one of these disorders of thought 
thought or mood regulation that psychiatrists commonly treat. Dr. Jeffrey Swanson is a professor in psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University School of Medicine. If we were to cure, magically cure, all the mental illnesses, serious mental illnesses in the world, like depression and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, which would be wonderful. It would reduce our violent behavior in society by about 4%, and 96% of it would still be there. Dr. Swanson, who's carried out research on mental illness and reduction of gun violence, says it's complicated because there's rarely just one thing going on. It could be a mix of trauma, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, alienation, and sometimes mental illness. But Angela Kimball, National Director of Advocacy and Public Policy for the National Alliance on Mental Mental illness says people with mental health conditions are 23 times more likely to be the victims of violence than the general public. When we think about gun violence, what we know is extreme anger, hatred, and violence can motivate people to hurt or kill others. But we should never confuse strong emotions and beliefs with mental illness. And because of mental health conditions, Kimball says the diagnosed experience immense amounts of discrimination while the rest of the world will confuse conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder with things like psychosis, which has many causes, including paranoia, Alzheimer's, drug use, trauma, or sleep deprivation. Blaming mental illness or mental health conditions for gun violence is really a distraction from the real issue at hand, which are evidence-based risk factors, and the fact that in our country, it's easier to get a gun than to get mental health care. Access to mental health care has been a passion of Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart, whose county seat is Chicago, a city no stranger to gun violence. At least 15 wounded. Authorities calling it a case of gang retaliation. Sheriff Dart has created mental health programs to help inmates in his jail, including the SAVE program, which groups young males from the county's 15 most violence-prone zip codes with mental health professionals. They spend eight hours a day going through cognitive programming that is, we tweak it every once in a while, but it's a pretty solid plan that we've had going for, I think, about five years now, where it goes at what we and experts have suggested are some of the triggers for violence. Sheriff Dart also developed a mental health transition center, a place that offers a complete schedule of behavioral treatment like anger management, therapy, meditation, and aftercare. And he has treatment response teams that focus on de-escalation tactics. We now have uh, iPads that my police officers have. And so when they go to a mental health case, we can literally hand them the iPad to either the mother or father, or we hand it actually to the person who's in a mental health crisis at the time. And they're sitting on the iPad talking to a mental health professional. Although most of the attention given to guns and mental health focuses on mass shootings, the CDC says on average 60% of all of the gun deaths in the United States are suicides. Two phone calls that really just definitively changed my life. Linda Cavazos, a survivor and advocate, lost her brother Louis to gun suicide. And found Louis with a single gunshot to the head. She says not only did her family not know Louis was having suicidal thoughts, he lied to a friend to get the gun. The friend basically left the gun unsecured with ammunition and told him that he wasn't going to be home and just to come over and get it. That's why Cavazos is pushing for more secure storage laws and what's known as red flag laws. 19 states have passed such laws, which Dr. Swanson says let police or family petition a court to temporarily remove guns from someone who poses a threat to others or themselves. Even if you're someone who says, well, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, here's a law to help you figure out who those people are. 
If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide or you're worried about a friend or a loved one, help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Aaron? ABC's Daria Albinger. And up next, we head to California in search of solutions. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to an ABC News special, Gun Violence in America. Once again, here is correspondent Aaron Katursky. Increasing gun crimes are plaguing cities from coast to coast. Police, politicians, and residents debate the cause and the ways to reduce gun violence, but nothing as yet seems to be effectively reducing the number of shootings. And so we ask what needs to be done to fix the problem. ABC's Alex Stone is in California's San Joaquin Valley, where one city is trying several ways to stem the violence. Cute dog. Aaron, this is Fresno, California. That dog barking belongs to the latest victim of gun violence. Murdered moments earlier, shot several times. His dog left alone as police look for evidence. Shortly before, we were out on patrol with officers of Fresno Police, riding with Officer Brett Hutchins out checking on a burglary when the shooting call came in. What's going on? Victim of a shooting. Racing to the scene with lights and sirens in this city of 525,000. Its population far bigger than Kansas City, Pittsburgh, or Cleveland. 2020 was the most violent year in Fresno in over two decades. And 2021 is outpacing that with shootings and murders happening so often, these officers can't get a break. We arrive on scene running to the victim. Okay, so we're running in right now with police into a homeless encampment. There's a man down. He's been shot. Running with the officers in, man down. He's got a bullet wound. You got it? Ready? I got one uh, entry wound right here. Medics aren't on scene yet, so Officer Hutchins, or Hutch as he's known to his colleagues, begins doing CPR. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
But the man is dead. Officer Hutchins says it is unfortunately a regular occurrence in Fresno. The majority of it is um, gang related. There's Fresno's just inundated with them. Um, with the gangsters. Paco Balderrama is Fresno's new police chief. Coming from Oklahoma City to run this department, he has a battle on his hands. How do you fix a rising gun violence problem? What we're seeing is, yes, a peak in violent crime. And there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. For Chief Balderrama and so many police chiefs in the country, it's not an issue of legal gun ownership. A vast majority of the guns causing problems here are illegal. They aren't bought and sold legally. I'm talking about people who have been to prison for violent crimes who have no business carrying a gun, uh, active gang members, people who are intending to hurt somebody with, with a firearm. Well, they try to battle the crime, Fresno is in a unique position. As many cities are cutting officers, Fresno is looking to hire 120 officers in the next year and a half. I think it's a goal that we can reach. Uh, we're, we're, we asked the uh, city council for $125,000 in a uh, budget towards recruiting. At this very moment, his department is looking for unique ways to end the violence. Marcel, tell me about this wall. Um, yeah, so we got Keontae Twin Perry, um, who passed away as a result of a, a homicide at, at a party. One of those ways is a new idea in Fresno called Advance Peace. It's a program that's less than a year old in the city. Its mission is to interrupt gun violence before it happens, getting to personally know young gang members who might shoot, giving them other ways to get out their anger. Before he commits a gun crime, he'll call us, or even after he's committed a gun crime, he'll call us. You know, so we try to get in front of it. Aaron Foster is key to the Advance Peace program. His son and daughter were both killed by gang gun violence here in Fresno. Now he works deep in the community with the trust of gang members to prevent violence. So we know the most lethal people because we saw him grow up as a kid. When he was in junior high school, we knew that this particular kid would be the next, uh, he's the next round of shooters. He says often after a shooting, they'll get a phone call from the shooter looking for support before police ever arrive on scene. Foster knows firsthand what it's like to lose family. Most parents can't imagine losing one child. You've lost two children. What has that been like? When you imagine it, just know it's 10 times worse than you can ever imagine. And it's nothing that I can describe. It's just something that you'll never get over. I mean, I still think about my son and my daughter and it's it's painful. Advanced Peace relies on some city money and the rest is through money raised. Marcel Woodruff also mentors young men and says Advanced Peace is truly preventing more shootings. There's nobody else actually seeking shooters and <laughs> said, hey, I want to I want to take you to, to get some Popeye's chicken, you know. Um, so I, so I, it, it is unique in that in that we are probably like the only group or the only demographic that are saying um, we want those who have been deemed the most lethal in our city and we want to build a relationship with them because we inherently know that, that means they've been the most unloved. He gets emotional as he shows me that wall of all the people they have known who have died in the past year. Uh, this is Isaiah. Oh, I'm not going to be able to go through this. Chief Balderrama supports the idea of advanced peace, saying it's one idea that might help reduce violence here. And when you build relationships and you have influence, you have no relationship, you have no influence. And uh, advanced peace gives us the ability to, to, to communicate. And, and give people resources. Advanced Peace offers gang members help finding jobs and getting an education, but there is an endless supply of ideas on how to end gun violence. Ask a hundred people, you'll get a hundred different and conflicting answers about what will fix the problem. California Assembly member Mark Levine is working on a bill that would place higher taxes on guns and ammunition. Say 10% tax on handguns and 11% tax 
on long guns and ammunition. The money from the higher taxes would go toward gun violence prevention programs. These are proven programs to help reduce gun violence in our communities. It would raise just over $100 million a year for these programs. But Sam Paredes, executive director of Gun Owners of California, says a tax like that punishes legal gun owners. He believes to stop violence in this country, it's about addressing mental health. Alex, we have 400 million guns in private possession in America. Any focus you put on reducing the number of guns in public is just not going to work. That horse has left the barn. He says what we're seeing today is a result of not enough police on the streets and ignoring mental health. He argues this is about dealing with a long-term solution without limiting legal access to guns. As long as they continue to look for solutions uh, by controlling guns that only affect, uh, through laws that only affect law-abiding citizens because they are the only ones who obey the laws, we are going to continue to see an increase in, in violent crime rate, an increase in, in um, uh, use of firearms and commission of crimes. Paredes argues so-called ghost guns are not the problem. Police and media make them out to be. Ghost guns are unregistered, typically homemade guns. The whole issue of ghost guns is a red herring. Again, again, I believe it's, it's the our elected officials deflecting. But for the officers on the streets in Fresno, they say ghost guns are a rising problem. Joe, the traffic on that vehicle, Jensen and East. Lately, it's been the ghost guns that are showing up. But what's the fix to guns being made in secret or illegal guns being moved around? Marcel at Advance Peace says it won't be a gun law. It has to be a long-term solution. So if we deal with the violence at those systemic and structural levels that are denying people um, access to the things that they need to move through life healthily, then we consequently reduce them using a firearm to, to, to make a way for themselves. But for now, Aaron, police here remain busy jumping from shooting to shooting. ABC's Alex Stone. When we talk about gun violence and policing in America, it can seem hard to find bright spots. But ABC's Mark Remillard looks now at one place where changes in policing and community outreach have had a dramatic impact in recent years. Aaron, for decades, Newark, New Jersey was listed among the country's most dangerous large cities. Oh, we're going to begin with that breaking news in Newark. Police are confirming this was a targeted shooting. Two deadly shootings in Newark in less than two days. The city of about 270,000 sits just on the other side of the Hudson River from New York and had the nation's third worst murder rate for large cities in 2013. For almost 50 consecutive years, Newark had been in the top 10 most violent city list. Akila Shirelles is the president of the Newark Community Street Team, a group that works to reduce crime through community outreach. Shirelles says by the 1960s, Newark, and particularly its communities of color, suffered under the weight of poverty, discrimination, and violence. And it was made worse when crack cocaine hit the street in the 1980s. All of us agree that the gravest domestic threat facing our nation today is drugs. In the 80s, when the, the, the crack epidemic hit urban communities across the country, it decimated Newark as it decimated most black neighborhoods across the country. Trauma was allowed to fester and ripple. And um, and so we saw the impact of, uh, of those policies around, you know, the, the war on drugs and the war on violence. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. Um, how it impacted, like, kind of young black men and also communities of color all across the country. And Newark was no 
not excluded from that. But starting in 2014, things began to change. Newark, New Jersey tonight touting a big drop in crime. Sherell says with the election of Mayor Raz Baraka, the city took a new approach. He immediately started, you know, the work on building out this complementary strategy to policing the Newark Community Street Team as he at the same time started to doing some reform um, within the, the, the police department. Baraka brought public safety under one umbrella, police, fire and other safety groups under a newly created Department of Public Safety, a move that the city says helps simplify operations and reduce costs. But it would take more than that to see lasting but change. He thinks there has been progress, helped in part by a legal settlement. In 2016, the city of Newark reached an agreement with the Department of Justice following an investigation into Newark police practices. The pattern of unconstitutional stops, searches, arrests, and unreasonable force. Brian O'Hara is Newark's director of public safety. He says the consent decree brought accountability. Provided like sort of like the the, the backing to ensure that the, the appropriate investments were made in these areas uh, to focus around reform. Among the changes was the creation of a civilian oversight board, the use of body cameras and additional training for officers. And since 2016, the city has seen remarkable improvement. The proof is in the numbers. Murder is down 20 percent since 2018. The same is true for shooting victims, down 14 percent. For five years, the city saw violent crime fall. And perhaps the city's biggest headline came last year. In all of 2020, not one Newark police officer fired a single shot. Sherell says the consent decree was significant, but he says the drop in crime isn't from that alone. It's in large part, he says, due to the community itself. I can't discount, man, the uh, the community-based effort pulling public safety out of the abstract and, and putting it in the hands of the people. And that is where Sherell's work has been focused, the Newark Community Street Team which was founded by Mayor Baraka as a complementary approach to policing. So we hire residents in the neighborhood, we train them as public safety um, professionals, and we deploy them in three key areas. Sherelle says there are high-risk intervention teams that work with police. Folks who just are well-known and respected in the neighborhood who could leverage their relationships um, to mediate conflicts. He says there's also a safe passage program. Every morning from 7.30 to 9 and from 2.30 to 4, we make sure our kids go to school safely and come home safely. It's a boots-on-the-ground organization primarily funded through grants and money from the city that's comprised of members of the community out to help and improve their own community, Sherell says. Public Safety Director Brian O'Hara says the community-based approach has had a big impact. The community engagement piece, uh, the efforts, the very purposeful efforts that were made there um, caused, you know, we were able to reap significant benefits. While Newark has seen significant changes over the last few years, O'Hara says the city still has to look forward. The message to others, uh, I would not be talking about 2020. That's ancient history at this point. O'Hara and Shirelles both say long term, it's investment in the community at large that's needed. We still need to invest in more community based infrastructure. We need to invest in certain communities uh, where there's, you know, concentrated poverty. We need to invest in education. We need to invest in, you know, opportunities for folks with jobs. O'Hara says, too, the pandemic has changed things. Schools were closed, courts delayed trials, and he says violent offenders were sometimes released on bail. The work, he says, far from over. Aaron? ABC's Mark Remillard. ABC News tracked a week's worth of shootings in the United States. Chief Justice Correspondent Pierre Thomas now tells us what he found. It should have been a celebration. The Bucks winning an NBA championship. Instead, gunshots. 
part of the chronic gun violence epidemic surging in recent months. More than 1,000 incidents, more than 430 dead, 1,000 wounded in one week. 3-2. Swing and a miss. As we started our investigation, gunshots outside of Nationals Park. That same night, a mother and her baby caught in the crossfire in a corner store in West Philadelphia, wounding the one-year-old. I'm tired of this. I'm sick and tired of this. Day after day, we saw so many children affected by this violence. One boy shot in a bedroom. And the bullet just went through the wall, went through his head. Tristan Jaden Rosas in San Antonio, Texas, was only 15, hit by a stray bullet. I should have been there. Because when you promise a kid that you're going to protect them, that's a promise you can never take back. Altogether, an unspeakable toll. More than 39 dead, 94 wounded under age 18. And of the deceased, six children under 12. We also saw mass shootings play out across the country. 18 incidents in 12 communities. And sadly, we followed as reports of suspected domestic violence ticked up. At least 44 cases. Virtually no area of the country was immune. But as ABC dug into the numbers, they showed violence disproportionately hit poor and urban areas. When you look at who's getting shot in this city right now, it's about 97% people of color. New York City saw a 73% increase in shootings in May 2021, compared to the same time last year. Commissioner Dermot Shea told us a lethal mix of factors is largely driving the surge. Gang violence, budget cuts, COVID shutting down the courts, leaving a backlog of more than 5,000 gun cases. Taking the gun off the street is great. But really what we need is we need the individual carrying the gun off the street. Philadelphia facing an even worse explosion. And now there's reports of shots fired at another end of the city. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw telling us. A lot of the beefs or social media disputes or whatever they're being resolved with the firearm. In so many neighborhoods, small numbers of repeat offenders terrorizing overwhelmingly law-abiding citizens. I said, I'm shot, I'm shot, I'm shot. And then I felt the heat and my leaguers were all running away. I shouldn't have to be afraid to stay in my home. At the end of a sobering week, we're left with the vigils. Creeping down on us right now. The lives lost, the families grieving, and the almost certain knowledge it's all but guaranteed to happen again. ABC's Pierre Thomas, whose sobering reporting begs the question, are we okay with this, with the kids involved, with the domestic violence, with the mass shootings, with one shooting incident every 10 minutes and 400 killed and 900 injured in one week and the certainty it will happen again the following week? I'm Aaron Katursky. You've been listening to a special presentation from ABC News. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.